Bible studies, um, what we do on Wednesday nights is we take a book of the Bible and we go through it verse by verse so that we read the whole thing in context, put it in context so we can get the overall picture as opposed to topical preaching where like on a Sunday morning I jump around and you know, speak on a specific topic and find verses that help that topic. Here, we let the Bible tell us the topic. Whatever verse, whatever chapter we're in, we go through it and uh, and just look at it as it comes to us. Now, we are in the 15th chapter of the book of Acts. And uh, the, the book of Acts is the history, recorded history, of the early church. What happened when Jesus, after he died and on the cross and then was raised from the dead, and then when he went into heaven, he told his disciples, go into all the world, preach the gospel to everybody you can find, and I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So what did they do? How did they do it? How were they empowered? How did they set it up? Uh, it's important for us today because um, it gives us a picture of how we should approach our faith today and how churches should run today. A lot of wonderful things that you can learn th- from the book of Acts and we have been learning it. Um, now, we are at the 15th chapter. This is where, uh, uh, as, as we talked about last week, the uh, lots of non-Jews were, getting, were becoming Christians, getting saved. Uh, they called them Gentiles. Uh, and anybody who's not a Jew is considered a Gentile. And uh, in the beginning, all the Christians were Jewish. Um, the apostles were all Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. Everybody was Jewish. And, uh, and they didn't even really think you could get saved and come to God if you weren't Jewish. Uh, at a minimum, you could have to at least convert to Judaism, become a Jew, get circumcised, start obeying all the legalistic rules and regulations of the Old Testament law, the Levitical law, uh, what you could eat, what you couldn't eat, when you could uh, worship, when you couldn't worship, when you could work, when you couldn't work. I mean, on and on. The list just went. It's, it's rather... Uh, amazing how detailed the law of Moses, uh, the Levitical law really was. And uh, they thought, well, you can become a Christian as long as you do all that first. As long as you do what we've done in our religion all our lives, then you can become a Christian. And what they started finding out was that, in fact, God started moving in people's lives who never did this. And even though they had never done this, they were experiencing God's power in their life. Uh, They were getting filled with the Holy Spirit. They were speaking in tongues. Miracles were happening. Uh, They were being baptized. I mean, these people were experiencing genuine life change and miracles like, you know, holy cow, I wish we could see a third of what these guys see. I mean, it was empowering stuff that they were experiencing. And uh, it was messing with some of the Jewish believers because they thought, well, wait a minute, how is this possible? You know, we said you could be saved as long as you did what we did, you know, but now God is moving in their lives and they haven't done any of this. And uh, Paul and, and Peter and these guys were on the front line and they were experiencing this and they were arguing, look, you don't have to do all that stuff. Uh, And then other brothers came along and said, no, you have to do it. And it became a major argument in the New Testament church at this point. Uh, And by now, uh, a lot of uh, hassles and persecutions were coming from the Jews themselves. Because the Jews didn't really have a problem with Christianity. They didn't have a problem with Jesus as the Messiah. They really didn't. I mean, I, I know people will say otherwise, but that's not what messed with them. That's not what they struggled with. What ticked them off, what fried them was that you could come to God without doing all the religious rules. And if you can't get on the rules, because we have to do the rules, then you can't get in on this. And when they started saying people could come to God without the rules, that's when they got mad. That's when they started rejecting Christianity. Not because of Jesus as the Messiah, but because 
Christianity says, look, this is by grace. You don't earn it. And they were so into earning it and so into their religious experience um, that they just couldn't accept it. We used the analogy last week of why, uh, even though not to this extreme, but why a lot of us who were raised in Catholic homes or Lutheran homes or Presbyterian homes, a lot traditional church homes, um, and then came to faith in Christ later, why a lot of them reject us and they don't want to have anything to do with us so they think we're crazy or we've joined a cult or we've gone insane or whatever the deal is because we're not following the rules because it was nothing like this heavy rules but they still had their religious rules and people get so married to their religious rules and a catholic has no problem with you coming to god as long as typically you come their way or the same a lot of these traditional churches and you know and, and this can go really across the board with virtually any kind of church, you know, even evangelical churches uh, that, that a lot of us have come from uh, get real technical about the way they worship and the way they dress and the way they, you know, you don't go to church and preach in jeans, that's that's heresy. Oops, spill my, spill my water. Uh, because that's horrible, you can't do that kind of thing. And all you got to do is start messing with people's religious traditions and they have a hard time with it. They will accept you typically as long as you look like them, think like them, do what they do, and engage in their sacraments. However, as long as you approach God the way they approach it, they're cool with it. So you can see how much, but when you don't, you have problems. So you can see how much static these guys must have gotten. Because if we get that just from being a different denomination or a different Christian background and don't do it just to them and, and like them and you see how mad, mad they get you can imagine how mad these guys got it was it was what we experienced on steroids I mean it was big time and they got so angry and it caused so many fights and and quite frankly a lot of, of the persecution on the church was engineered by these people who couldn't get past it so here they have this big fight they have this big council in Jerusalem that's what chapter 15 is all about and some guys are saying, yeah, you can come to Christ without other religious rules from the Old Testament. Others are saying, you, you can't. Paul, Peter, everybody gets up. They argue accordingly. And then after everybody had this big fight, and it was a big fight, then uh, we'll pick it up at chapter, uh, chapter 15, verse 12. So here's where we start tonight. Now the whole assembly, all these guys who were together arguing and fighting all this stuff out, became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through the Gentiles, among the Gentiles, through them. So they already heard from Peter. Now they're quiet as they're listening to Paul. So they're getting a double whammy here of these guys saying, look, this is what God is doing. Clearly these people are getting saved. Clearly they are experiencing God. They're repenting of their sins. They're being filled with the Holy Spirit. God's transforming their lives. They're experiencing miracles. God's answering their prayers. And they just sat and listened. So after they had this big fight, now this is real interesting. Verse 13. When they finished, James spoke up. Now we've been hinting at this James guy. Who is James? This is probably the same James that wrote the book of James that we started uh, uh, about a year ago uh, studying. Um, this is obviously not James the Apostle. Why not? Because remember, the first apostle to be killed by Herod was James. So it wasn't James, you know, that uh, the brother of John who was with Jesus. This is a different James. Who is this James? He's not one of the apostles. Who is this guy? Now, mo most Bible scholars pretty much agree that James was the James that we read about back in the Gospel of Mark, the sixth chapter. So flip back over to the Gospel of Mark, chapter six, and, and, and let me share this with you.
Uh, starting at verse 1. Now Jesus left there uh, and he went to his hometown. So he's in his hometown now. This is where he grew up. These were the people who all knew him. And remember, we're not talking uh, New York City here. We're probably not talking even Chicago or even Green Bay. I mean, this is 2,000 years ago. The cities weren't that large. I don't know how many people lived in the area where he was from. But you think everybody in Green Bay can know what everybody else is doing. You can imagine the smaller the town it gets, the more it's like that. I came from Nielsville, Wisconsin, a town of uh, 2,800 people. Everybody knew everybody. And, uh, and it was even worse in my wife's town, the town of Greenwood, where, you know, I forget, it was like 1,300 people there, maybe when all the chickens and squirrels show up, you know. And boy, you talk about everybody knowing everybody's business. The smaller the town, the more they know. And these people knew Jesus. They knew his family. They knew his history. All right? Now, so this is his hometown. So he goes there accompanied by his disciples. Now, when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were amazed. Now, a lot of people were amazed when they heard Jesus. Typically, because of the great wisdom that he had, because of the incredible miracles that he did. I mean, can you imagine listening and experiencing Jesus? I mean, how cool that had to be. Well, the reason why these guys were amazed is because they knew Jesus. They knew him as a little boy. He grew up. He was the local kid. And they had a hard time with this. And this is what it says. Where did this man get these things? How did he come up with this? We know this guy. And they asked, what's this wisdom that's been giving to him? That he even does miracles. Isn't this the carpenter? They knew who Jesus was. He was a carpenter. He didn't start his ministry until he was 30 years of age. Well, he didn't just sit in a room praying all day. He had a life and he uh, was involved in the community and he had a job. And the job that he did was as a carpenter. And these guys all knew him. But even further than this, and this is what will mess with some people, particularly, quite frankly, those of us who were raised Catholic. And I'm in, in that group. But check this out. They say, isn't this a carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? We're all cool with that. And the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. They thought, I know this guy. This is his family. This is, this is Jesus. Now, the reason why this will mess with people who are raised uh, from a Catholic viewpoint um, is because of the way they treat Mary. Now, we all agree that Mary was a virgin and was conceived by the Holy Spirit. There's, there's no question about that. Uh, but that Joseph married her, and, um, you know, our basic uh, viewpoint, according to the scriptures, and this and some other scriptures, is that after Jesus was born and stuff, then Mary and Joseph were allowed to have a normal life, and they were able to have sexual relations and have other children and stuff like that. Again, if you're a Catholic and that freaks you out, you know, we're not going to get a big fight about it. If you want to think Mary was a virgin all of her life, then fine. You know, we're not going to get a big argument about it. But the Bible certainly points to here that he had brothers and sisters. Now, those who defend the idea that Mary was a virgin all of her life say, no, those were just brothers in the faith. No. No, these were guys who knew him all his life. He was the carpenter. This is his mom. There's his brothers and sisters. It didn't say brothers and sisters in the faith. They didn't even talk in those kind of terms, uh, you know, uh, in this in this Jewish community that they were at. So um, 
it is our belief, most Bible scholars' belief, unless you come from that very uh, old line of thinking, that James, the first one mentioned here, is the same James who wrote the book of James, also referred to as the Lord's brother, and was the James who ran the church at this time. So this is the half-brother of Jesus. Now, from our viewpoint, again, Mary, no question, was a virgin. This was a divine thing. No one touched her. Joseph never touched her until she after after she had Jesus. From our viewpoint, at that after that, there was no reason for her to remain a virgin. You know, so it wasn't like all of a sudden she's not a virgin and she's some filthy person. She's married. She's, it's, it's perfectly fine. Uh, if you want to think that no, you can't get past that because of. 30 years of hearing it one way, then it's fine. It doesn't really make any difference at this point. I'm just trying to tell you who, who James was. If you don't think that's who he was, then who he was to you, I have no idea. Or to other Bible scholars, there's, you know, they try and come up with, it must have been some other guy or, or whatever. Um, anyway, what's interesting about this is that it's not one of the apostles. That's really rather stunning because... What we were taught, again, from ecclesiastical churches, mainline churches. I feel like I'm beating up on Catholics and Lutherans and stuff here. But uh, what, what, what has been taught by a lot of these guys is that the church leadership in terms of the ecclesiastical power of the church and stuff came from Peter and then Paul and the popes and all these other different kinds of things. And uh, it's, a, it's a little confusing why the apostles were here, but James is the one making the final call. Why is that? Well... I would argue that it's not this ecclesiastical structure that many of us have been taught that there was. I don't think Peter ran the church. Certainly not all the churches, and certainly not even this one. The church of Jerusalem. Neither did any of the other apostles. So well, what did they do? Remember when back when they started having fights about whose widows got how much food and whose didn't? And they came to the apostles and said, fix this. And they said, we're not going to fix this. We're not going to take time to deal with the details of the church uh, and pull us away from prayer and the ministry of the word. So they made a decision, get deacons and raise up other guys. That's where Stephen came from, who was the first martyr. Okay, a little review here of, of where we're at in the book of Acts. He was one of the first deacons, and the deacons were supposed to be spiritual men who helped with the details of the church. Uh, that was the first indication there that the apostles were saying, we're not going to deal with the details of of the church. And by the time we get here a few chapters later, now they keep referring to James. James and the brothers. When they talked about the church at Jerusalem and who they're going to deal with, they all refer to James and the brothers. At this point, I think the apostles had made the decision, we're not even going to run the church locally here. We're going to set somebody else up. And at this point, uh, the one person who had the most amount of credibility uh, amongst them was this guy named James, who was either this guy no one, you know, I don't know where you think he came from, or was this half-brother, which most Bible scholars believe it was the half-brother of Jesus, who was raised with Jesus, who understood this, who came to faith, who was born again, and uh, and, and this powerful influence uh, in his life, obviously, and then they trusted him to run the church at Jerusalem. I, the apostles were there. Peter was just there making the argument. Remember, Peter didn't get up and say, well, now I am the Pope, and this is the way it's going to be. And then even Paul is saying, no, I'm the Pope. Now you're an old Pope. I'm a new Pope. I'm going to make this. Neither one of them did it. These guys got up and made their case as apostles before everybody, and then looked at James and said, well, what are you going to do? And then James makes the call. Totally different than what a lot of people have been brought up thinking. Which brings another important point. This was a church not run by a board. 
okay? The board did not vote and make the decision about what was going to happen. It was the pastor of the church who now is James, at least the church at Jerusalem, and he is going to make the call. It's really how we structure our church here at Celebration Church. I, as a senior pastor, actually have the final call or the final say uh, in decisions in the church. We don't vote about things. You've never had us, seen us take a vote, and you never will. We don't get together and vote on, you know, what kind of pulpit are we going to have. When it came to getting this pulpit, we had lots of people with opinions who, who liked the big metal thing. Problem with that is I'm shorter than Pastor Arnie and I looked like I was in about sixth grade while I was preaching behind it. So we didn't want that anymore. And some thought we should get a, you know, one of these plexiglass ones and da 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 da. And then I saw this and said, this is cool. And once I decided, it didn't matter what anybody else thought. Why? It's my call. And we weren't certainly going to have a business meeting of the church and have you all vote and have discussion and take ballots and see what kind of pulpit are we going to have, you know, and make a decision going forward. And believe it or not, the vast majority of churches today, evangelical churches in America, run exactly that way. It's one of the reasons they can't accomplish anything. It's one of the reasons they're so small. 400,000 churches in America, 90, 80% of them, whatever, have about 125 people in them. I mean, this is crazy. It's ineffective. It's insane. The inmates are running the asylum. Everything's got to be political. and They've got to vote on everything. And we've got the board. Uh, one of the things that makes people uncomfortable about coming into our church, who come from that world, one of the first questions they'll ask is, oh, well, who's your board? Who makes decisions around here? Well, I make the decisions around here. But that doesn't mean that I just rule like Mussolini and don't listen to anybody. Remember, up to this point, James hadn't said a word. He listened to everybody else. He, we have elders in this church uh, and, and people that we get together and they give input into my life and we discuss issues. And, and, and then after they've done that, then the final decision is pretty much Mine. Having said that, uh, this is how we even started the church in Stevens Point six years ago, and how I've run it since I've been here for the last two years, is uh, virtually the entire time, everything we do has been, in fact, done by unanimous consent. Um, you know, if I have anybody in my elders group, my advisor group, that has a problem with a direction, I usually will hold off until we can all get together in one mind and one accord. And while some people, you know, if, if someone doesn't agree and they don't say anything as far as, and I tell them this, boy, if you don't say anything, you've agreed, you know, so if you don't agree, speak up. But we've, we've even had big meetings where it seemed like we all agreed, and then later one of them would come to me and say, boy, I've, I've got a real problem with this. And right away I'll go, whoa, hold it. And then we all wait. Again, it's my call, but I try to get everybody on one heart, one mind, one accord. To me, that's the leadership. Just telling people what to do, uh, you exercising power, like, oh, I'm the pastor, we're going to do it my way, you know, yeah, I guess you can run things that way, but that's not being a leader, a leader is inspiring people to want to follow you in a certain direction, and my uh, challenge is as a leader, if I can't lead a group of 12, 15, 16, 20, however many men and women in a room, and I just got to exercise power, I'm not much of a leader, so, uh, um, but that's how our church runs, you know, if, if it ever came down to a big fight like this where half went one way and half went the other way? Well, the final call in the end would be mine. Thankfully, we've never had anything like that and certainly nothing. The good news is we're not trying to describe, decide who can be saved and who can't be saved. We're just trying to decide, you know, you know, you know, are we going to 
resurface the parking lot this year. I mean, it's not deeply spiritual decisions that have to be made. But the way we run this church is, in fact, the model that we get from this. James was the one who'd make the final call after all these leaders would have their say, but there was no voting, there was no politicking, there was none of this nonsense. They didn't call a business meeting, have everybody in the church take votes or anything else like that. They left it up to the pastor, the senior pastor in charge of the church, who was in fact James, who I and most Bible scholars believe was the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, which... Another point to be made from that, as I'm on a roll here, we've only gotten into one verse here, or two verses, is, uh, boy, talk about, you know, I talk often about multi-generational faith. You know, about passing your faith on to your children and to their children and children. That's really the biblical model. It wasn't Abraham, you know, Raul and Bob. It was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Father, son, grandson. Uh, they were passing on the faith. And even in the church, isn't it interesting the one who came to pave the way was John the Baptist, who just happened to be the cousin of Jesus. And then the one who winds up running the church of Jerusalem happens to be the half-brother of Jesus. I mean, talk about the forces strong in your family. I mean, this, this, is, uh, this is pretty cool. And this is the kind of model, the fact that we should be able to turn... Uh, generate our faith to the next generation and then on to the next generation and to the next generation. If we do this right, if we really follow the biblical standard here, we will create multi-generational faith uh, that will carry the kingdom of God forward and indeed is one of the major goals in my life and certainly in in this church. Okay, All that from uh, all of this uh, reading about James. Okay, so, pick it up again, verse 13. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. So here James has been listening quietly. Now he's going to make a call. Simon, who's Peter, has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking him, by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. And the words of the prophet are in agreement with this, as it is written. Then he starts quoting from the word, the Old Testament. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent its ruins I will rebuild, I will restore it, and the remnant of men may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. So he quotes from the Old Testament this line that talks about Gentiles who are going to be part of the kingdom of God, who will bear his name. He says it was prophesied in the Old Testament. What Simon just talked about is an agreement with the word. So right away, uh, we see what James did. He didn't just listen to advice. He took advice and compared it with the word. How does what we think, how does what you think line up with this? Uh, That's what we got to do as leaders. It's got to get back to here. And then he makes the call in verse 19. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Now, check this out. Now, this is from this is this is really significant. Excuse me. Ah. Uh, this is really significant. Um, what he's saying here is, out of all of the Old Testament. Out of all the regulations about when to worship, when not to worship, 
what to eat, what not to eat, when to make love to your wives, when not to make love to your wife. I mean, all I mean, these guys were like, it was seriously regulated. You talk about life. Of all of that, they boil it down just to this. This is what they have to do. Number one, abstain from food polluted by idols. What is that? Um, now, it's something we don't really experience in this country. But they're in, uh, in idol worship, they would take food, and they would take the food, and they would consecrate it to the god, you know, whatever idol that they were worshiping. Uh, they might take an animal and even sacrifice it to the god. And then they would take that animal after sacrificing it, killing it, and the blood running out. Then they would butcher it up and sell it at their local store for a hamburger or steaks or whatever the thing was. And the rule was you could not eat food sacrificed to idols. It's an Old Testament rule, and it's one of those rules that they passed on to us. So, again, I don't know how many butchers down at Cops Food is... <laughs> Taking the cow and killing it on the altar of Baal. But uh, if that were the case, then as Christians, we should not be buying that food. Because it was worshipped and and sacrificed to an idol. I remember uh, some guys who were, uh, I think there was Hare Krishnas or whatever. Nice guys, dancing around with their head shaved. And one of the things they would do is they'd like to take food and hand it out to people. And uh, I remember them coming to me and, and trying to be nice and give me some cake or something to eat. But And I politely refused. Not that I was holier than them or, or whatever. It's just we're not supposed to eat food that's been sacrificed and dedicated to idols. Okay? So that's one thing. Uh, number two, the Old Testament was very clear about sexual immorality. So they said, we need to make sure you stay sexually pure. So number one, don't eat food, sacrifice to idols. Number two, don't commit sexual sin. What is sexual sin? Let me define it for you. It's sex with anybody other than your husband or wife. It's just that simple. You should not be having sex with anyone outside of your marriage. And if you're not married, you single guys, for the love of heaven, quit sleeping with your girlfriends and you girls quit going to bed with these guys. As people of faith, we ought to get this right. And it's amazing how many people, how many people struggle with that. Oh my goodness gracious, because they're just so up to their eyeballs in sexual immorality. We should not, as people of God, be into sexual immorality. Uh, the next one, you shouldn't, basically three things, uh, food to idols, sexual immorality, and the meat of strangled animals and from blood. What is that talking about? Uh, they're basically the same thing. You shouldn't be drinking blood from an animal or, which, again, pretty gross to us. We don't do that. I mean, a lot of people don't like, can't handle their steaks medium rare for crying out like my wife. You know, you got to kill the thing and burn it, you know, until it's like shoe leather before she'll eat it. But uh, you say, was this an issue? Yeah, in that culture it was an issue. And in fact, there are cultures around the world where they still drink blood, where there's tribes where they will bleed the animal and, they, and then they down the blood. It sounds, sounds totally gross to me. You know, you'll, you'll, I think I saw it once on a, a Survivor, you know, where these guys had these different things. One of them, they had to drink blood. Uh, very gross. As a believer, I could eat the bugs, I could eat whatever, but if I was on that show and they said they have to drink blood, I would have to pass and say, I'm sorry, I can't do it out of religious grounds because we're not supposed to drink blood. Uh, and the other analogy that they use is strangled animals. And what that means is instead of uh, 
killing the animal and draining the blood from the animal. They would strangle the animal so the blood would stay. You talk about juicy steaks. Oh, my gosh. This is like ugh. just a regular steak, even after a properly bled animal can have some juice in it, which I like. But, I mean, these were strangled animals, and the meat was just chock full of blood. Again, I know I'm grossing a lot of you out, but that just, it's just it is what it is, and that's what they did. And, again, in some cultures around the world, they still do this. But as believers, these, the simple things that we were not supposed to do, was to engage in those things. Don't eat food, sacrifice to idols. Don't get involved in sexual sin. And don't be eating and drinking blood. So out of the three things here, uh, two of them had to do with food. And one had to do with sex. Uh, which is quite the boiling down considering all the food recommendations that they had. So I say that to say this. Don't let... Anybody confuse you about what you can or cannot eat as a believer. Also, uh, now, you can decide, look, I don't want to eat pork. I don't want to, you know, I want to do the maker's diet, you know, whatever they call it, whether using, following some of the guidelines of the Old Testament. You can do that if you want. But don't make it a religious thing. And don't make it that other people have to do it. Um, of all these rules, the only rules passed on from this Old Testament in this decree, which we're about to read again, uh, they seem to do things double here. But uh, um, the, the only things passed to us was don't eat this stuff if it's sacrificed to an idol or that's full of blood and don't commit sexual sin. That was the main thing. Also, it's, it's significant that even in this, they didn't get into what days you could or could not worship. Now, I know for some people, and I have some wonderful friends, uh, you know, that are Seventh-day Adventists or other people who, you know, believe that Christians should only worship on Saturday and stuff. And, and I don't get in big fights with them. Actually, they're great friends of mine, and I've done a lot of conferences for Seventh-day Adventist uh, churches. Uh, some of the best conferences I have, quite frankly, around the country are at those churches. And I've, I've got a big one booked again for January coming up uh, in 09 here. And we love those guys. And I just don't get in a big fights with them about it. But I don't worry about it. Technically, the Sabbath is a Saturday. If anybody ever says to you, you only the Sabbath is a Saturday, you'd have to say, yeah, you're right. And then if they say you can only worship on Saturday, go, no, you're wrong. Because the truth of the matter is we can worship on any day we want, uh, as Paul taught in the New Testament. And in fact, we will see that as we look at some of his other epistles. One other interesting thing about all of this. Paul, uh, <laughs> because he was trying so hard to get to freedom. You remember the book of Galatians, when he's so mad. He's trying so much to get these guys into freedom and telling them, look, it doesn't matter what you eat. And it doesn't matter what day you worship. And all these kind of things. How people who are so legalistic miss that with Paul, I don't know. It just totally blows my mind, but they don't. But, uh, uh, you know, Paul, Paul even got to this when he says about food sacrifice to, to idols. He says, don't ask. Don't ask. I mean, it was, he was the first don't ask, don't tell, you know, of, of the day. Paul's answer to this was, yeah, you shouldn't eat food sacrifice to idols, so just, just don't ask where it came from. Which is kind of bending what these guys said. Uh, Paul, if you really get the sense from Paul that other than sexual immorality... That's all he really cared about. That the whole eating thing was, was not an issue. But if you're going to get very technical, bottom line, the two rules for eating for Christians, things that have been sacrificed to idols don't do it, or blood. And we're not, again, we're not talking medium or steaks here. We're talking blood, 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 blood that we shouldn't eat. Okay? And the reason they said that is the next verse. He says, For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Moses meaning 
the law of Moses. He says, Moses, this law has been preached uh, all over uh, the world, the known world at that time. And people get it that these are probably the two major eating things that we've always spoke against. Uh, so it's consistent with what everybody already knows about people of faith anyway. You don't have to follow all the rules, but just don't do that, is what they asked. Okay? And that's pretty much it. Verse 22, then the apostles and elders, uh, check it out again. James made the call, and the apostles are going along with it. They were not the ones calling the shots here. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And they chose Judas called Barsabas and Silas. We're going to be more aware of Silas in, in just a little bit here. So keep that in mind. This is, this is part of this group. That's where Silas came from. So Paul and Barnabas and then Judas and the Silas guy, they sent uh, two men who were leaders among the brothers. And with them, they sent the following letter. Now we're going to read the letter. This is the decree. Like I said, we're going to read it again. This is the again. This is the decree that the founders of the church, these apostles and elders with James, the head banana down there at the church, made this decree. Here we go. To the apostles and elders, your brothers... Uh, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. What did they say? You need to be circumcised. You can't eat this. You, know, you got to become Jewish, basically. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. So they really wanted to get this point across. Paul and Barnabas uh, brought the letter, but then a couple of guys who were part of this council came along with them so that in person they could verify this is true. This is what we decided. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Oh, oh, oh. There's a whole sermon right there. Um, let me keep reading and I'll, maybe I'll come back to this. It can seem good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. So here are the following requirements. Here is the document that they boiled down the whole law of Moses to us who believe in Christ. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. If you, you will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Boom. That is it. That is what was decided. Issue over, you would think. But it wasn't over. These guys wouldn't let it go. Just like we have people today after thousands of years, 2,000 years of this, and, and teachings where Paul made it very clear in my mind that we don't have to do all these things. People still get hung up on this stuff today, and they did in that day, and they continued to trouble Paul wherever he went. That's why he wrote that book of Galatians. He was so ticked off and angry at these guys, wishing they'd go to hell. I mean, if you don't remember the study, go read the book of Galatians. He says, if these guys who are telling this stuff, man, I wish they would be eternally condemned, which means go to hell. And he said it twice. And uh, he was really intense about this. So, um, but this is right there in black and white what the Bible says is our requirement from the Levitical law. It's just that simple. Again, you would think it's that simple, but 
It never ends. Every there's always people who hang on to it, and it seems every so many years in Christianity you you get a resurgence of this. It's been a while. Uh, quite frankly, I think we're due. I, I really think I think we're kind of due for some wacko doctrine to go around. It's been a while. Thank God it's been a while, but it's, it's you know it never ends. So uh, yeah, I, I I really you've heard me say this before. I mean I, I think we're due. We're, we're due for some wacko guy to come along and say Jesus is going to come back in 2023 or you know this October 15th they got a revelation or you know why we got to obey the Old Testament this way or we got to worship on this day or you know whatever it is. It's just it never goes. It has never gone gone away. It will never go away. It will keep coming back. But we're going to teach you the word. We're going to preach the word. And when it comes around again, I'm going to hammer them with the word. And hopefully you're there too and not getting... Hopefully you know enough of the word by this point that you are not influenced by that when it comes back. And I promise you, just wait. I'll be shocked if some wacko thing doesn't pop up here in another couple of years because it's been a little while since the loony birds have been out creating some wacko doctrine uh, about something. Anyway... But there's the word. That's what it teaches us. Okay? Don't be shaken. Don't be fooled. Don't be knocked off track when somebody comes along and starts sharing with you why you need to obey these Old Testament customs, what days to worship, days of jubilee, days of not jubilee, blah, 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 blah. All right. So... There's the letter. Then the men were sent off and went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. Well, the people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Uh, what was the encouraging? <laughs> the encouraging part, you don't have to do all this stuff. You don't have to get circumcised. You don't have to obey all this stuff. They were glad. Well, Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. And after spending some time there, they uh, were sent off by the brothers with a blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Okay, now, let me back up here uh, to this very important point that we, we stumbled on again, just for a second there, where they said, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. What does that mean? These men understood that as believers... We are to make decisions based on the word of God, as James did there, uh, and based on, 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 the, on the peace of God that's in their hearts and by the, Holy, the presence of the Holy Spirit. But they make the decisions. What's fascinating about this is that not one time did they say, well, this is a big decision. We need to figure out. Let's pray and ask God what, what to do. Let's pray and ask God to tell us what to do. And I promise you, if a decision anywhere near this level, and it doesn't take this, I mean, it can be, you know, what color are we going to make the carpet? And people will say, well, let's, let's pray and ask God, you know, what color we should, we should get. Or let's pray and ask God, you know, or whether or not we should, you know, uh, resurface the parking lot. I've, I've mentioned that twice because, quite frankly, we need to. Uh, uh, more money, more money. Um, you know, I'm telling you, the bulk, the, the bulk of Christianity today, and I'm a bit of a rebel on this thing because I don't see it in the Word. The bulk of Christianity would say, well, let's pray and ask God when to do it. 
let's pray and ask God what to do. Da, 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 da. Now, am I against asking God for direction? No, not at all. I pray for direction. I ask God for wisdom and stuff. Uh, but it's more really about wisdom to make the right decisions. Most people don't want wisdom to make the right decisions. They want God to tell them what to do. That's where I have a problem. And that's where I become a, a fly in the ointment. And I stick my finger in these guys' eyes and go, no! Quit acting this way. Um, first of all, we're not Moses. You're not Moses. Even these guys weren't Moses. They were apostles and stuff. But even God, how often the Holy Spirit would speak to them, but in pieces and in bits and in riddles. Remember when, uh, who was it? Uh, Philip. Was it Philip? The uh, guy that got translated uh, from one spot to the other. Uh, I can't remember what I'm talking about now. Yeah, yeah, Philip, who he sees that, you know, God... Uh, tells him to go to a certain place and he goes and he sees the Ethiopian over there talking to him and the Holy Spirit says go over there and stand by him and then he goes over and stands by him and then finally he starts preaching to him why didn't the Lord just say at the beginning I want you to go over to this place and you're going to find this Ethiopian guy and I want you to preach the gospel to him because that's what a lot of people teach that's what God will tell you exactly what but even here he didn't give that kind of detail he gave just enough push till you finally got enough sense to go, oh, I guess I should witness to this guy. And he, and he finally acted. Why? Because God wants us to make decisions. God wants us to act on our own. God isn't this oppressive creature where he just wants around and tell everybody what to do. You do this and you do that and you do this and you do that. And so much of what we call being led of the Holy Spirit today in evangelical uh, Christianity, man, almost all forms of Christianity is God will tell you what to do. And it's created so much confusion because we have people today who can't make a decision on their career because God hasn't told them yet what to do. They can't get married yet because God hasn't told them who to marry. They can't, you know, surprisingly change their underwear for crying out loud with the Lord not telling them, you know, and I don't know, maybe they don't change their underwear. I have no idea. All I know is we've gone nuts. And this has been going on for... For a hundred years in this country where we've gotten so off base to where we think that to be led of the Lord we need some kind of divine word, some divine revelation, something. And, and these guys, notice what they said. They didn't say God told us to do this. They could have. Why didn't they? Because God didn't tell them. What they said is it seems good to the Holy Spirit based on what? What Peter had said and what Paul had said. There's no indication the Holy Spirit even spoke to them in this meeting. That the Holy Spirit had led these guys and led these guys. And it seems consistent with the word of God that he quoted. Seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. We are making a decision. We believe it's in harmony with God. We believe it's in harmony with the Holy Spirit. And uh, and, and we're going to pick this up next week when we t- take a look at um, how uh, Paul and Barnabas go on their next missionary journey uh, yeah, 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 coming up just a few, a few verses here. And, and we're going to see this again, where God frequently did not give them detailed information. Just enough to kind of push them, but then they had to make decisions. And that is the point of this, it seems good to us and to the Holy Spirit. Because, and you've heard me preach on this many times if you've been around me at all. But it just fries me that so many people today boil every decision down to, well, I'm just waiting for God to tell me. You know, and then they eventually will make a decision based on what they think God told them, and then it doesn't turn out. And then you wonder, you know, was God nuts or were you wrong? Because they never admit they were wrong. And just this over spiritualized stuff, it's not 
the way we're supposed to be doing this stuff. I do say this, that if God definitely doesn't want you to do something, he'll tell you. He will speak to you. We'll see some of that, where the Lord will come and make a specific statement. But by and large, we still remain in a state of grace, in a state of faith, where we're working together with the Holy Spirit and the Word. That's and see, One of the reasons why people want God to tell them is they don't want to know the Word. Is well, God, just tell me. Well, God says, no, learn this. I don't repeat myself. I don't just move my lips for the sake of moving lips like Pastor Mark. All right? When God talks, he's pretty much, he's done with it. Learn what I say. Learn what the scriptures say. Uh, understand wisdom. Um, you know, pray. Seek my face. Uh, be filled with my Holy Spirit. So, so, so that I can guide and lead you. But people don't want that. They don't want to read the Bible. They don't want to have a devotional. They just want God to tell them. So you say, well, what are you doing for the kingdom of God? I don't know, nothing. Waiting for God to tell me what to do. Waiting for God to tell me what to do in the church. You know, whether I should work in the, in the sixth grade class or the second grade class. Waiting for God to tell me if I should sing in the choir or not supposed to sing in the choir. Waiting for God to tell me, stop it. And when you hear other people like that, gently shake them and say, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. Make a decision. Do the right. God will guide and lead you, but he only guides a boat that's moving. It's like the rudder on a boat. It makes no difference if the boat is sitting. Once you get moving, you step out in faith, then the Holy Spirit can start directing you, but you need to step out. You need to understand this concept of it seem good to the Holy Spirit and to me and to us in wisdom, making decisions and not waiting for just God to speak out of the heavenlies. Uh, and uh, anyway pretty wild stuff so next Wednesday we'll pick it up here and uh, we will see how uh, Paul uh, starts his next missionary journey kind of starts and stops it a little bit as he's learning to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit God bless you guys I will see you next week bye